Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn back to John chapter 8 and read from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen from my, with my father, therefore... You also do the things which you heard from your father. He answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now, we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. 
and you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O God and Father, we call upon you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we ought, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and teach our neighbor by our good example, rendering to you the love and the obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you graciously to receive us among the number of your servants and children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So this is a huge chunk of Scripture. It all hangs together. It's one back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees, that subset of the Jews. And it's, there's so many truths in here, so many deep truths that, that you, could, you could spend many months preaching through this passage. But I decided to take it as a whole. Uh, I decided to take it as a whole. In fact, um, I think there's one theme I want to draw out of this as we go through it, and uh, we'll get there in a minute, but, but remember, throughout chapter 8, right, Jesus has been engaged in this battle with the Pharisees, right? All of it has been this back and forth between him saying something, they responding out of ignorance, and Jesus correcting them, and then they responding in just uh, anger. Right, the woman, remember the woman caught in adultery, was brought before Jesus by the Pharisees and was used to try and trap Jesus. They were just trying to trap Jesus. And they dragged that woman out who had been caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees denied Jesus' testimony because they, they um, claimed he was merely testifying about his self, himself. And Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are bound to die in their sins if they do not believe in him. Remember those very intense words. If you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. The whole series of interactions points to the unbelief of these Jews, particularly those of the Pharisees. Right? And now this now his his the intensity of his words goes up even further than what preceded. But he's already been very intense with them. Look at verse 30, right before 
the passage that we're looking at. In verse 30, we learn the stark, blunt words of Jesus did not turn people away from the gospel. Rather, it led many to believe in him. Right? The, the hardness of his words, the fruit was many people believed in him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him, says that verse. These words were not Jesus gentle and lowly. Right? They were not that. His hard words were Jesus confronting those who had perverted the word, who had laid heavy burdens on the people by adding their, their ridiculous traditions to the word of God, who had denied Jesus and, and sought now to put him to death, not sought to get him locked up, not sought to, to uh, debate better than him, but they're just like, no, we, we need to whack this guy. He needs to die. And remember Jesus shunning them when he drags his, his fingers through the dirt, not even looking up to answer what they're saying, just playing in the dirt, not responding to their words. He tells them that where he is going, they cannot come. He, he tells them that they judge according to the flesh. He tells them they do not know the Father and they do not know Him. He tells them, I mean, above all, probably the harshest thing He said, they will die in their sins. He's prophesying to them that they will die in their sins. He tells them they are from below. He is from above. They are of this world. He is not of this world. These are not exactly friendly words, are they? But they are truth. They're truth. And of course, Jesus, this is like a stupid statement. Jesus cared about the truth. Jesus was truth. And Jesus cared about the truth. He did not flatter. He never flattered. He never pandered. He never lied. He never, he, he did not... He did not do everything in his power to ignore people's sins, right? Like us and how we do that often. We just don't want to address the elephant in the room. We hide ourselves from it. Jesus was always willing to address the elephant in the room, right? He spoke the truth and he exposed the sins of the Pharisees, their unbelief in him being their foremost sin. And it's that kind of speech we learn in verse 30 that led many to believe in him. Think about that. Don't let this point go past you. It's that kind of speech where he's condemning the Pharisees that led many to believe in him. The expectation of the church today, you know what I'm going to say, is that the pastor needs to speak in such a way that the church is a what? What am I thinking? A what? The church is a safe place. A safe place. Don't we hear that word used all the time? Safe places? We need a safe place. Right? And the pastor of our churches is essentially paid not to expose our sins, not to exercise authority, and not to care about the truth. 
But rather the expectation we have of our pastors is that they will speak about sin generally, right? Generally speak about sin and focus most, most upon the sins of the culture, not the sins of the church, but, the, but everything outside the culture. We, we want to denounce people who don't know the Lord. We want to focus on their sins. And congregations give pastors permissions to speak about sin generally when they're in the pulpit, but they must never come out of the pulpit and address people one-on-one as they did in the pulpit. Don't ever do that. We like you railing on sin up in the pulpit, but don't come and talk to me and have the same tenor. It's in a very striking section of the Reformed pastor, Richard Baxter writes this. He says, they say, quote, you are so precise and tell us so much of sin and duty and make much a stir about these matters, while such and such a minister that is as great a scholar as you and as good a preacher will be merry and joke with us and let us alone and never trouble himself or us with such discourse. You can never be quiet, but make more ado than needs, and love to frighten men with talk of damnation when sober, learned, peaceable divines or pastors are quiet and live with us like other men. People will give you leave to preach against their sins and to talk as much as you will for godliness in the pulpit if you will but let them alone afterwards and be friendly and merry with them when, they, when you have done, and talk as they do, and live as they, and be indifferent with them in your conversation. For they take the pulpit to be but a stage. A place where preachers must show themselves and play their parts where you have liberty for an hour to say what you want and what you say they regard not if you show them not by saying it personally to their faces, that you were in good earnest and did indeed mean them. I, I, just, I think that's one of the most helpful sections of that whole book, which is like the... the wounds of a million swords the whole book is right men we've read it and now let me take you back to jesus with the pharisees jesus had spoken hard words to these men was the hardness of his words the result of his hatred for these men is it because he hated them that he went after them The fruit of his preaching to them that day was many came to believe in him. I mean, you're going to die in your sins. Many came to believe in him. You don't know the Father. Many came to believe in him. Perhaps some of those many who came to believe in him were Pharisees. Right? 
Perhaps the fruit of his hard words was finally a realization that for many of them, they were at odds with God and stood condemned. Maybe they realized that. You see, it was love that motivated Jesus to do something other than flatter them and tell them how good they were and lie to them about their righteousness before God. It was love. He was loving them by giving them a a strong shot of truth. How many today, including each one of us, I mean, examine, let's examine ourselves, will avoid speaking to others about their sin because we have believed the lie of the devil that has convinced us the only way to lead somebody to Christ is to create a safe place where they can believe in Jesus despite their sin. Right? That's what a safe place is. It's come to Jesus despite your sin. It's come to Jesus ignoring your sin. Conviction of sin is not only lacking in our approach to sharing Christ, but conviction of sin is understood today to be a betrayal of the good news of Jesus Christ. Conviction of sin is, is, is understood to be a betrayal of the doctrine of grace. Read the, read the writings of the Revoice men and women. Do you know the Revoice movement? Right? This is the movement in the Presbyterian Church of America, our former denomination, where those who are, are professing Christians and professing homosexuals right, say, you know, that, that that's compatible. As long as they don't touch one another and, you know, have sex, then it's fine for them to be gay and, and to be pastors and to be members and to be Christians, right? They see no illogic. They see no tension there. And they write and write and write and write about the church having to become a safe place, a welcoming place. But they only do that after they've repudiated repentance, repudiated, denounced, denied, protected from repentance. In fact, they repudiate any conviction for sin because they have misread the gospel as a gospel of cheap grace. Right? In, in their paradigm, they can go on in sin because they have been justified. And they may live any way they would like, having been justified. Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer wrote this about grace. If grace is God's answer, the gift of Christian life, then we cannot for a moment dispense with following Christ. But if grace is the data for my Christian life, it means that I set out to live the Christian life in the world with all my sins justified beforehand. I can go and sin as much as I like and rely on this grace to forgive me. For after all, the world is justified in principle by grace. I can therefore cling to my bourgeois secular existence, my middle-class suburban existence, And remain as I was before, but with the added assurance that the grace of God will cover me. It is under the influence of that kind of grace that the world has been made Christian, but at the cost of secularizing the Christian religion as never never before. 
the antithesis between the Christian life and the life of bourgeois respectability is at an end. The Christian life comes to mean nothing more than living in the world and as the world and being no different from the world, in fact, and being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. The upshot of it, of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that all my sins are forgiven. I need no longer try to follow Christ. For cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me from that. That's the revoice movement, right? That's a repudiation of repentance. It's a repudiation that there's anything good in Jesus being hard against sin. And this is our context in in making the church a safe place where we only talk about the sins of others and, and studiously avoid talking about our sins and the necessity to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We undermine the very purpose of God's word. The church is a nursery where we are meant to grow up into maturity. It's, a, it's the house of disciples. Discipleship is supposed to happen here, right? We're supposed to grow up in maturity. Cheap grace makes the church into a sort of cryogenic freezer where we remain just as we are in spectacular detail as when we entered. Jesus confronting those Pharisees was an act of love. Right? His hard words was an act of love and a demonstration that we enter the kingdom of God through repentance. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. It is through repentance. Right? Not, not as a meritorious work. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But as a necessary result of God's work in us. God works in you. What's it going to look like? You're going to be sick of yourself. You are going to be be overwhelmed by a sense of your sin if God's at work in you. If God's not, then, then your sin is nothing to you and you, you, it's even precious to you. You will retain it even as you call yourself a Christian. And so I guess I've preached on verse 30. But just think about that. Think about that. Think about it. He spoke hard words and many came to believe in him. That leads us to this long section of scripture for this week. And I'll start by saying this. Yielding to the word of God is proof that one is a disciple of Jesus Christ. All right? Yielding to the word of God is proof that one is a disciple of Christ. Amen? Okay. That's the theme of the rest of this chapter. Jesus will be pounding that truth home to the Pharisees. They think that in resisting Jesus, they're doing the will of God. Jesus will correct them and tell them they are rejecting God by rejecting his word. And as I said before, the word of God is is not cushy and easy. right? The word of God cuts and wounds. Right? It cuts and wounds 
And it does so through the entire life of the believer. It's a double-edged sword that, that exposes our sin. It is sharp. The scriptures never flatter. I mean, you can't go to the scriptures and come away flattered. If you can, you're reading some sort of weird paraphrase. It's the word of God does not take into consideration your precious feelings. It does not care about your feelings. Right? It, it does not make room for your manufactured currency, which is victimhood. It does not make room for that. Right? Even as it directs you to the only source of comfort and salvation and everlasting life, it does, does so with the ringing noise of hammer blows. It's pounding. There's this Shostakovich symphony. I don't know. It's like number 11 that has hammer blows in it as one of the instruments. You take a hammer and hit an anvil. And it rings out. So cool really good sound. That's the word of God. I mean, it, 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 it carries through an entire orchestra at top level. Metal against metal. And so even, even as the, the, the word of God is giving you comfort and salvation and, and showing you the truth and, and everlasting life, it's, it's hammering you. It offers you peace in Christ and a life of dying daily to follow him. That's what it offers you. That's what it leads you into, right? Luther wrote this about the word of God in one of those table talk sessions. He said, I admonish every pious Christian that he take not offense at the plain unvarnished manner of speech of the Bible. Don't take offense, right? I know we're all soft. I know we're all victims. I know we all like... Like, our products of, of our culture, right? And, and just we're really soft. And it is, it is our nature to, be, to, to take offense at the Word of God. But here Luther says, I admonish every prized Christian that he'd take not offense at the plain, unvarnished manner of speech of the Bible. Let him reflect that what may seem trivial and vulgar to him emanates from the high majesty, power, and wisdom of God. The Bible is the book that makes fools of the wise of this world. It is only understood by the plain and simple-hearted. Esteem this book as the precious fountain that can never be exhausted. In it you find the swaddling clothes in the manger whither the angels directed the poor simple shepherds. They seem poor and mean, but dear and precious is the treasure that lies therein. Right? So, I mean, look, look at verse 31. Okay? I'm going to take you through this passage now and show you what it says about the Word of God. So look at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, so some of those Jews had believed in him, and Jesus is addressing them now, and then they respond, and I think those who respond are not believers, right? 
but he's, he, he's explaining to them, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you continue in my word, you are my disciple. The Pharisees rejected God's word. Jesus says, therefore, to those who believed in him, that they had a new life to live, one that would be marked by continuing in his word. The disciple of Jesus Christ studies the word and finds this paradox to be true. Freedom is only to be found in submission to God. Freedom is only to be found in submission to his word. We think of freedom as autonomy, as being freed from rules, but Jesus tells us that freedom is found in knowing the truth, which is only found in his word, and living accordingly. That is discipleship. Finding the truth, living accordingly. Now remember, he is saying this to those who just recently believed. Note that he is not patting them on the back and saying, you're in, you're good, you know, you've arrived, be good, sit back, relax, enjoy the ride. Enjoy, enjoy your new safe place. You've believed. I mean, it's not enough brothers and sisters, simply to begin well. It's not enough to begin well. The Christian life is one of discipleship, which means pursuing obedience and conformity to what Christ commands in his word. It's a fight. It's a long, joyful struggle. A delightfully painful putting to death of the old man as we seek to be like our Holy Father. It is the pursuit of holiness. That's what discipleship is. Right? And believers persevere to the end. They do not quit in the middle of the course. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now that's the first time that Jesus points to the word in this passage. He does throughout the passage. The first time there's in 31, it contains that short thesis, disciples of Christ continue in his word. They are people of the book, right? They understand the word of God to be a unique God-breathed source of truth. They, don't, they, they do not one day leave off the word and turn to some other source of, of supposed truth. They continue with the study of that one book. That doesn't mean they don't read other books. Right? But they use scripture as the filter through which all other claims are passed. It is, after all, God-breathed. It is, after all, the very will of God written down for us. If you deny that, you're not a Christian. The second mention of the word is in verse 37. Look at verse 37. It is a condemnation of the Pharisees. Their action of seeking to kill Jesus, even as even as they're claiming a connection to the blood of Abraham, shows that his word has no place in them. The Pharisees, rather than seeking to obey the word of God, which would start, actually, by not murdering somebody, right, let alone God's son, are proving themselves ignorant of God's revealed will. Some of those Pharisees, I mean, think of them. They're the Pharisees. Some of those Pharisees may have been able to quote long sections of the Old Testament from memory. 
Or they may have been able to tell you what the old rabbis taught in excruciating detail. Or they may have been able to eloquently exposit the scriptures. But they were completely ignorant of God's word and God's commands. If they had understood what God said, they would have been trembled. They would have trembled at God's sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Instead, they acted just like a bunch of modern people who will only obey one thing, what they feel. Right? That is the arbiter of people's actions today, isn't it? It's the arbiter of, of most of my actions, isn't it? My feelings. Obey my feelings. That's my reality. That's my truth. If someone feels something, they feel like they are a woman even though they have that dastardly Y chromosome. Well, then they must obey their feelings and not obey their sex. Right? We're, we're no different than these Pharisees. They hated Jesus, so they had to obey those feelings. Had the word of God had a place in them, right? That could have replaced those feelings. Had a, the word of God had a place in them, it would have replaced those feelings. And they would have obeyed God's commands. They would have submitted to an objective standard outside of their objective muck or their subjective muck, right? But that's, uh, that's too impersonal a way to put it. This is better. They would have obeyed God and distrusted themselves. Verse 43 is another mention of the word of God and another condemnation of the Pharisees. Again, after claiming that Abraham is their father, Jesus mentions that their deeds are not those of Abraham. Abraham lived this sort of different way than, than you murderous liars are living. The fact that they are attempting to kill Jesus because they cannot endure to hear his teaching is proof that they have not been given ears to hear that word. Jesus says, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. This is more than just saying they prefer their own feelings to God's word. This is talking about an actual inability to hear God's word. An actual inability to obey God. They do not have what is needed to follow God. They are unable to hear Christ's word because the spirit of God has not yet changed their stony hearts. That doesn't mean they don't have any authority over them that is pushing them in a certain direction. In fact, these Pharisees do have an authority, don't they? The Father, Jesus says. The authority is the devil. Not the Word of God, not the Son of God, not God. Their authority is the devil. If they loved God, they would do as Jesus said, but they instead obey their father, the devil. They like to do what he desires for them, the passage says. That's what they like to do. He is a liar and a murderer, and he desires his children to be liars and murderers, and that is precisely what the Pharisees have become. They become liars and murderers. They lie about Jesus, and they seek to kill him. And then we see another mention of the word of God in verse 47. Jesus says, he who is of God hears the words of God. There's that contrast. 
They cannot, the Pharisees cannot hear the word of God. He who is of God hears the words of God. And so one must be born again, as we long ago studied when we were back in chapter 3 of John. Until that time, the word of God is foolishness. The person is unable to understand the word of God. He, that person lies in darkness. The only one who can truly hear the word of God and understand it is the one who is of God, as our passage says. All of that is to say that God must allow us to understand his word. God must work in us before we understand his word. Being dead in our sins, our minds are corrupted. We are unable to do anything that pleases God. But then God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive together in Christ. And the result? You can understand the word of God. You can understand his work. You can understand his will. You can do works that actually glorify him. We're actually able to hear the word of God and respond in faith. The Apostle Paul says this, puts this to us in the second chapter of Corinthians. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The funny thing is, is that those who aren't Christians think they completely understand this word, don't they? They think they understand that this is patriarchal, misogynistic, sexist wickedness. And they think they've got it nailed. They think they know the intent of the author and the authors. They think they know this book. And they are completely stupid, ignorant, blind. In verse 51, we have another reference to the word of God. Jesus teaches us that it is those who keep his word who will never see death. The death he is speaking of is what, uh, is, it's not like those who keep his word will go on living in this life. No, he's talking about the second death. Those who keep the word will, will not experience that second death. They will not die and find themselves in hell. So who will not go to hell? It's those who pay heed to, watch over, and seek to obey his word. They don't just go through life obeying their feelings. They have a book that they're in bondage to. They don't just, they, 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 they go through this life fearing God and seeking to obey his commands. They do not perfectly keep every commandment. But when they break the commandments, they're sick to their stomach, right? And feel as if they've betrayed their Savior, which is what they have actually done. Yet the glorious good news is this. As John says elsewhere, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I mean... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The natural man's going to look at that and it's just going to just be like, Psh. 
grief. Hypocritical Christians. Right? And then deny that he's ever committed any sin in his life. Then one final mention of the word of God in verse 55. Jesus says that he himself keeps his father's word. Jesus' obedience was impeccable. His obedience was thorough and perfect. He lived to do the will of his father and he never failed to do so, never ever single at any single point in his life. Never had to repent never had a bad conscience. Never once did anything that was motivated by something other than love for and fear of his father. Right? He feared his father. He lived in the fear of his father. Fear leads to obedience. So note the contrast here in our passage. And use this to examine yourself. We see two groups of people distinguished by their relationship to the word of God. Okay, that's what we see in this passage. Two groups distinguished by their relationship to the Word of God. This is the division that will exist in all mankind through all ages, right? Until the Lord returns. Every other division between people that we make so much about today, political views mostly, are superficial compared to this one. They are meaningless compared to this one. This is a division that will have eternal meaning. Whereas political views, though they may be fruit of our spiritual understanding, will not ultimately determine anything. There's a group of people on the one side who will hear God's word and abide in what it commands and teaches. There's another group of people who cannot hear God's word and in which the word of God has no place. The former have found that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They have loved the appearing of Jesus Christ, who is the very word of God. They have God as their father, Jesus as their savior, and the Holy Spirit living within them. They, as, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, have learned that they are not their own. They belong both body and soul to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The other group, the latter group, do not care to keep God's word and are perfectly content to go on obeying their own passions and finding their only source of wisdom is themselves. Oh, vomit. It's so, so pathetic. It's so sad. It's so thin, so superficial. To have as your only source of wisdom yourself, you're the arbiter of all reality. And you have a brain that's made out of dust. They believe that life consists in satisfying their desires and obeying their feelings. They are the captain 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 of their own ship. They fiercely believe that they are their own, and in the end they will find that they actually are not their own as they thought, but belong both body and soul to the first murderer and liar, the devil. Think about that. 
life or death, heaven or hell, blessing or cursing, depend and hinge on accepting the message of Jesus Christ, the word of Jesus Christ. Set before you is life and death. Which will you choose? Will you face death being the master of your own destiny, which actually means to be in league with the devil? Yes, the devil is real. The devil is a real being, a person. I don't care if you think I'm foolish. That's what Scripture teaches. Or will you face death covered in the righteousness of God, which is yours by faith? You may not have much time to come to Christ. You may not have much time. The day is drawing to a close. You may not have much time. You do not know what this day holds or what tomorrow will bring. Will you take Jesus' yoke upon you and learn from him? Learn from him and find rest for your souls? Or will you go on believing the lies of the devil that there is nothing after death? Or that God cares nothing about what you think about his son? And so he's just going to welcome everybody in. Welcome everybody into his warm embrace. Or, or perhaps you believe that we are a cosmic accident and there's nothing spiritual, nothing eternal, nothing true, nothing right or wrong. No, no, that's wrong. It's not what the Word of God teaches. Hear what Jesus taught here and put your trust in him. He is able to give sight to the blind. He's able to make the lame walk, right? He is able to cleanse lepers. He, he will give hearing to the deaf. He will give life to the dead. He can do that. He does that. Ask him. Ask him to do that for you.